This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And you're listening once again to one of our remotely recorded episodes, which we are putting together during the coronavirus outbreak here in the United States. From BB's bathosphere at 20,000 leagues beneath the sea. (laughs) We don't know how it's going to sound, but if there's a difference in sound quality from what you're used to with our normal episodes, that's probably why. That said... We do want to add that we are not going to talk about the coronavirus today. So if you're discovering this episode a year later or years later, we're actually going to be producing something that hopefully you can enjoy if we're all still around. Right. (laughs) Sort of like there being a war bond ad at the beginning of the picture that you're watching on Turner Classic Movies. They're not still trying to raise money for war bonds, but it was at the time it seemed like a good idea. (laughs) Right. Um, And it's an opportunity for us to do another installment of our special feature here at TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric, which is Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. And that means it's time for me to talk about the rules of True Crime TV Club, which is my favorite part. Christopher's favorite thing. Eric's least favorite part. So this is how it works. (laughs) First, I take a sip of water. While I'm trying to talk, after having said I'm going to say something, I'm going to begin drinking tea. I get everybody's attention, and then I swallow into the microphone. It's a a (laughs) Jedi mind trick that I learned in Jedi school. Jedi tea drinking school. Jedi tea drinking. Actually, that was water, but it's just a swallow, so you don't know the difference. And you can't see me because you're in your house and I'm in mine, and that's what we call social and physical distancing. So, yay. I can see the side of your head. Typically, we record these in our own studio, which is lovely, where we've been for years. But, you know, that would require us being within spitting distance of each other. And that is not currently recommended. So and there's a lot home. of spitting at that studio. My God. There is a tense. lot. Eric does a lot of spitting. So That's we're right. the rules of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. We're going to break down and serve up an hour of true crime television for your listening pleasure. If you would like to pause the podcast and go watch that hour, we've picked something that's streamable on many different platforms. However, that is not a requirement because our job today is to serve up the episode in as much detail that you'd be able to walk away from this podcast and talk about it with your friends as if you've seen it, even though you've just listened to the two of us bitch about it. So the episode that we are discussing today is... In, um, oh, did I not write? What season? Fuck, I didn't put it on the show notes. I'm a terrible producer of this podcast. It's the first season. The first season of a series called Murderers and Their Mothers. And it's the second episode. 
And it's the second episode. What would I do without you, Eric? The rules would be shot. And the episode's title is Fred and Rose West, The Killer Couple. Having given the rules of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Is it on Prime TV? I can't remember that. Is yes, that, we watched right. it on Amazon Prime, but it's um, possibly available on other platforms. I, I don't know. We have something here at the Dinner Party Show. We have a subscription to uh, the True Crime channel on Amazon, which for a monthly, a low monthly fee, gives you access to a lot of Discovery ID programs. Oh my god, it's so great. Oh like god. the hardest part about reviewing them is not watching all of them because you read a description, it's like, oh, I have to see that. And it's like, no, you have to find an episode for this week's show. It's really challenging, but it's really great because there's just an endless amount to watch. So Eric picked this one. So if you thought it sucked, it's Eric's fault. That's how we do things here at oh, the that's, TDPS. That's how it's going to be. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, well, no, I'm going to say this right up front. I really thought this didn't suck. In fact, this was the first truly British, and I'm not just talking about the crime, which was obviously British. Um, Fred and Rose West are two of the most notorious serial killers in British history. We may not know them as well here in the United States as we know killers like Ted Bundy and um, the Night Stalker, but their reign of terror is very well known in, in that country. This was a very dense, and I mean that in a good sense of the word, academic and well-informed hour of television about an absolutely horrific series of crimes. I thought the people just they interviewed- Just the most, oh my God, just unbelievable. We picked this because this this episode is this is going to first air on Mother's Day. So we chose right. the Murders and Their Mothers series and- uh, yeah. Wow. Um, and, sorry, mom. Uh, yeah. So happy Mother's Day, everybody. And um, but that said, I really felt like the show spent a lot of time documenting the actual crimes. I thought it was going to be some agenda driven. It's all the mother's fault. I I'm always leery of uh, anybody who tries to paint a serial killer as solely the result of a bad background, because a lot of us have bad backgrounds. And don't but go holy on to crap. serial killers. But oh my God, these were some of the worst childhoods and backgrounds you will ever hear about. The most horrible. I just, I, I couldn't believe what we were hearing. It was just uh, astonishing. Anyway, I, I guess we should delve into it rather than just simply continuing to express our astonishment. You'll see why we were horrified as we go along. Uh, I will say this, the special, uh, because they are looking specifically at the early lives of two killers who met in their adult life and came together and began killing together later and did not grow up together. They sort of divide, the early part of the special is devoted to Fred West's childhood and then the, the second half of the first part is devoted to the childhood But how else could they do it West. if they're going to talk yeah. about their mothers? Obviously they have two different mothers, so. yeah. Um, so Fred West was born in 1941 in a town called Much Markle. Did I get that right, Eric? I think yes, that's right. Them. I was so struck by that Much Markle. So not the first Markle to uh, land on those shores after all. <laughs> and it, maybe you know, maybe um, a warning, Much Markle. Huh? We got lesser Markle this time. Yeah, um, and she now lives in Los Angeles. Yeah, right. Or Canada. I don't. I don't know where she is right no, now. No, they've cause... they've moved to Los Angeles now. Oh, okay. All right. They well, they left Canada like on the last flight out. Yeah. 
Um, so Fred is one of six children. Did I get that right? I forgot to put the exact number of kids in the show notes, but he's one. I don't know. Like I just was, Oh my God. It was just horrifying. Typically what happens here on Christopher and Eric's true crime TV club is that if it's a really horrible story or a really bad story, we try to get through it quickly so that we can then be sharing our opinions about it. But the truth is if it's a really bad story is, and it's not well told, we bitch so much about it along the way that it takes the whole episode to get through the narrative. But um, with the Matamoros cult murders a few episodes ago, we told the story as quickly as possible because we knew how gruesome the details were we were going to have to get through. So um, plenty of gruesome I, details here. And this one is uh, this. I will say of this special that it is a much less um, like while it is the crimes are horrific and it's salacious. It's a much more sort of pedantic. Um, approach to discussing the murderers. This is a series of journalists and, um, you know, alleged accredited people. You you always wonder how they've connected, collected the criminologists and whatever, but, but it is more them talking about this situation and its psychological implications than it is the, the more traditional kind of dateline, you know, interviews with people. Obviously it happened a long time ago, but but even with that being the case, it it is more like there there's not a lot of them and there's there's not a lot of there are a few pictures and a few whatever, but it's mostly um a documentarian's kind of view in an educational sort of way. Um, yeah, looking the, at these people in the circumstance. Exactly. The host's name is Donald McIntyre. Is it Donald or Donald? I, I I couldn't tell if it was Donald. Let's go with I, Donal. Donal McIntyre. Um he is uh, not as much of a scenery chewer as many of his American counterparts might be. He interviews uh, people as Eric just described them, various types. Although I'll say the standout for me was an author named Jeffrey Wansell, who um, is a very witty Brit with the w- Sally Jesse Raphael glasses, sort of bright. The one red. who was sitting next to Frodo Baskin's fireplace. Is that yes, absolutely. It was that one. I could yes. not take my eyes off the brickwork behind him. It was like either show the fireplace all the way or turn the camera another foot so that the the corner of the fireplace is out of it. But don't just show me the upper corner of the fireplace. That drive drove me crazy. And I will say, and in a typically British fashion, they weren't really trying to play up the conflict between the two, but Jeffrey Wansell, the author of a book called An Evil Love, which is clearly about the the case, is often at odds with what is said by a criminal psychologist named Dr. David Holmes, both of whom are interviewed separately from each other, but they at times contradict each other. So he'll do these interviews and then they'll pause and suddenly Donald McIntyre will be in a studio that's been set up to look like an academic crime lab. And he's talking to someone named Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, who's defined as a criminologist. And they oh sort my of God. like... Who looks like um, she sings with a punk band on the weekends and she thinks it's her bigger job. And they're being interviewed in a room that looks like the elementary Sunday school classroom at the Episcopal Church at a time when the kids aren't using it. Like, yeah, it's the like production what the value hell? is not through the roof here. Oh, but my God. The- no. The quality and the substance of the interviews, I think, frankly, are a cut above what we have covered recently here at the um christopher and eric's true crime tv club so anyway back to fred west born in yes. 1941 in the town of much markle in the region of herefordshire um it's a there are a lot of kids in the family the, the home is described as a hovel 
There, it's a very rural, mean life. They're described as being constantly raise a pig in the living room and kill it and butcher it there in, in the, the living, living room. room. <laughs> I was like, oh my god. <sighs> Fred's mother, Daisy, is basically rules the house. She's the dominant force. She's got a leather belt, which she uses to beat the kids with. She uses the buckle part of the belt for this. Um, her, her husband, Walter, is described in the interviews as violent and possibly a murderer. And author Jeffrey Wansell says this uh, specifically because at the age of 23, his former wife was a spinster who was considerably older than he was, and she died after two years of marriage to him under suspicious circumstances, and those suspicious circumstances are she died of a bee sting. We're not given further details on was the bee carrying a weapon of some sort? Was it was Or she, somebody she stuck a, her head into a beehive and held it there until she was dead. Which like given what yeah. Yeah, which would not have been even sort of unusual for these people. It, the thing that is so striking about this childhood is that the, there is an absolute, complete absence of any sort of social norm. There are yeah. no values. There is no right or wrong. There is nothing. It is like animals loose in this house. I, I just, I, I the, the, that the kids survived is kind of an astonishment. Uh, Walter takes young Fred out into the fields when he's a little boy and has him watch him force himself on women, basically rape women in the fields, uh, not too far from their home. In front of his young, you know, prepubescent child. Daisy, the mother, molests Fred when he's 13 years old, and we're told- She's his first sexual experience. She chooses this age because she's decided he is sexually mature enough in ways that we don't want to get into, but- um, and this begins basically a legacy of molestation and abuse in this house that's happening on all sides. He is Fred, a young Fred, is eventually taken to court for having sex with his sister, and it's believed he was encouraged to do this the by the mother. Yeah, she wants him to sleep with his, and he, and he impregnates the sister, and then the mother comes to court and lies about it and says he would never do anything of the sort, even though she was the one instigating him having sex with his younger siblings uh, herself, I, I just it, it, stories like I, the whole thing was like it was, and it went on for twenty minutes of the just the horrific oh God, stuff yeah. that was going on in that household. My God! And uh, the sister refuses to testify against him as well, which is part of why the case, the incest case against Fred, falls apart. He's actually twenty when he's prosecuted for um, incest because he impregnated his thirteen-year-old sister. Yeah, lovely. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. So now it's time to pop over to Rosemary's horrible childhood. Oh, she is my born God. in Northam, a small Devon town in the southwest of England. 
Her father is a paranoid schizophrenic who is described as subjecting the entire family to a reign of terror. This drives his young wife into a depression. As a result of this, she receives electroshock therapy while she is pregnant with Rose. While she is pregnant. So the Rose, the queen, the mom in this story that we're launching into was still in the womb while her mother was receiving uh, healthy doses of electroshock therapy. They said maybe even the day before she was born. Oh, my God. I missed that part. I was so in shock from all the other details. That whatever whatever the timeline, they believe it damaged her brain so much that she develops the nickname in childhood of Dozy Rosie because she will see, appear to nod off, but she also rocks back and forth in a way that indicates neurological damage specifically to the prefrontal cortex. And that is, of course, a region of the brain that people associate with impulse control and determining right and wrong and all of the things you want to be functioning well if you have any potential for violence whatsoever um because rose's mother has basically retreated entirely into her depression no doubt compounded by enormous doses of electroshock therapy which she was administered um the father looks to rose for sex so it's the same thing basically that was going on in fred's house so he starts sleeping with his uh, very young like 10 12 year old daughter like very young woman um just as soon as it was possible he began having sex with her as opposed because the mom just was not you know she wasn't up to it so um meanwhile over in fred's life he's a young man now and he they believe he has started killing and they believe he gets in his van and he prowls back roads late at night looking for vulnerable, lonely young women as his victims. And one He's also night, married. That's right. He gets married to a prostitute. And so they have ch- a child. And and they have a child. That's right. And the child's at least name one. is Charmaine. Is that the name yes. of the child? I think okay. Charmaine is. The, yes. One night, thinking he's picking up a victim... He picks up Rosemary, and it is apparently an instant serial killer connection of a sort. He finds her sexy, and he finds her sexualized in ways that attract him, probably completely because uninhibited. Yeah, shared experiences of abuse. Uh, so they immediately fall in love. In 1970, Fred is jailed for theft. And he leaves Rose in charge of the two children that he had with his former wife who was working. They don't say what happened to her. He'd killed an earlier girlfriend, they think. But they don't say if they killed the the first wife or not. I I guess he probably did, but it wasn't clear. So they decide mutually while Fred is in prison that Charmaine, the young child from his previous marriage, is simply too much of a handful. So... Uh, Rose kills her and buries her. Just like that. You know, like it's and she's like planning. eight. They just kill her. Yeah. The other thing that's happening during this time period is Rosemary's father, Fred. Mm-hmm. Isn't that his name? What's the father's name? Is it it's Fred? No. What's the father's name? Uh, I'm looking back. It's, uh, oh my God. Did I not put the father's name in there? I'm a terrible well, show note taker. Whatever her father's name was, yeah. he's he's first very opposed to Fred, who is her husband, um, and uh, 
Oh, Bill. Bill turns to Rose to satisfy. Uh, the father, Bill, turned, uh, doesn't like Fred at first, and then they start getting along, and so they even go into business together, and um, he consents to the marriage on the understanding that he's going to come and live with them and that they will share Rose um, sexually. Christ. So he's the father is still living in the house with them after they marry, um, and they're, she's sleeping with both her husband and her father, who are both still living there, and he helps her kill the eight-year-old daughter and dispose of the body when Fred goes to prison. I just thought, you know, it's a family show, so we wanted to talk about the whole family. Uh, yeah, happy Mother's Day. Jesus. Um, it, it, yeah, so this is the house, where is this? 25 Cromwell Street. It becomes an infamous murder house in, in um, Britain. I can't remember what specific city it's in. Is it in London, or are we outside I wasn't London? ever clear. I was yeah. trying to figure it out. I was never really clear exactly where they were operating. Yeah. Um, so once Fred gets out of prison for theft... Uh, he and Rosemary begin working together as serial killers. They begin stalking homeless women, drifters. There is a phrase that is used that I think is a very, it's a British phrase, less than dead. I don't imagine it's very politically correct, but it's used to describe, you know, women who are sort of hanging on the fringes, you know, in mean circumstances, turning to sex work on the street, maybe feeding addictions. Um, but people that wouldn't be missed, yeah, um, people who wouldn't is be kind missed. of the people that they, and and he has gone. Uh, Fred has gone and taken the cellar of the house that they've they've moved into and turned it into a dungeon and torture chamber because they don't just kill and rape the women; they keep them for a while and they mm. become playthings that they torture and hack God. off bits of and just Jesus do Christ. Inex- uh, hideous, uh, indescribably horrible things to. Um, you know, for their amusement and pleasure uh, in the family home with the full awareness and knowledge of the rest of the family. Uh, they're having children. Yeah. And they are There's grooming the children. Raising children. Yeah. They're grooming the children to basically be their molestation victims. And in 1987, the oldest daughter, Heather, is about 16 years old, and she decides... She's kind of had enough, and she starts to push back, and she starts to rebel. So they kill and bury her in the backyard. Underneath, and then he puts a patio over the top of her, and there are squares in the patio. Mm -hmm. Um, And he knows under which big square of the patio she's um, buried, and and it's two down and three to the left. And yeah. so when they're disciplining the other children, they tell them you should behave yourself or you'll wind up two down and three to the left because all of them know that that's where the other daughter is buried. Like that's that's a family joke and disciplining that that's where they killed and buried the child that was tired of being raped. God, yeah. So... Uh, the younger children are playing outdoors one day. A bicycle cop is simply riding along, and the children engage him in conversation, and they say to him, what would you do if your father was abusing one of your siblings? And this pricks up the policeman's ears, and they begin to investigate, and they start to do interviews. And I think what they eventually realize is that Heather is missing. The oldest daughter is is nowhere around, and that is when the kids tell 
the police that they would reference Heather as being two down and three across, which was and the they don't as any sort of patio. right. It's and it's not delivered with any sort of reticence or upset or anything. They know that that's they think this is normal. That's the thing that the psychologist and kept depicting is that Rosemary and Fred were raised in such hellacious you know, pack of wolves environment that that's what seemed normal to them. They didn't have any basis for comparison. So their behavior seemed like an appropriate choice because it was the behavior they had been surrounded with their whole life. And the same was true of their own kids. They didn't think it was weird to say that Heather was two down and three across because that was, you know, they knew that's where she was. So the police excavate the backyard and they discover not only Heather's body, they discover multiple bodies of multiple victims. Many of them dismembered and buried in pieces in the yard of this house in the middle of town. This was not an isolated house. It's like a row house in in this neighborhood. It's a townhouse. It could definitely be in Earl's Court or somewhere in London. I I don't know where it was, but it was not out in the countryside. It, It is amazing to me. And this had been going on for, they said, two decades? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's close to that. So Fred is jailed for theft in 1970, and that's when he leaves Rose in charge of his children from his previous marriage, and they kill Charmaine. 1987 is when the oldest daughter, Heather, begins to rebel. So by then, they've built up a new family and a new legacy of abuse and torture. Um, so it's, it's gone on for a while. I don't remember when the first killing that they commit together of a victim they pick up off the street is, but it's somewhere, it doesn't sound like Fred's in jail for theft for very long. Um, and when they find the bodies in the backyard, Fred immediately confesses to all of the killings. And they say he confesses as if in this sing-songy voice, as if again, it's just normal that he did all of this, you know? Oh yeah. That's what I did. They're buried over there. yeah. Yeah. We cut her head off. Yeah. That, with the no big deal kind of no kind of emotional connection to their behavior at all. And he also is trying to protect Rosemary. Like the reason he confesses to doing it is that he doesn't want her to go to prison for it. Mm-hmm. But she does, right? Or did I miss that part? She goes to prison. They were not clear about it, but God, I hope so. My God. I hope she I... didn't stay there and raise the kids like Jesus Christ. And no, I also no. don't wasn't clear on what happened to her father. I assume that he eventually passed away, but I don't actually know that. I mean, hell, they could have cooked him and eaten him, given their mm-hmm. general uh, forms of behavior. Like, this was these were people, the, like Fred was... The father also, in addition to showing him rape, his father also introduced him to fucking the animals. They would, the, the pig that they raised in the um, the living room that they slaughtered there, he would also fuck the pig. Like, mm-hmm. these, these were just, I, 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 these were like animals. These were not like people. These were people who were raised like animals. It, it was a really interesting case for the nurture versus nature kind of argument that they have, because it was like, I guess there was some, mental challenges to these people, but there was also, they were raised in an environment where this was the norm. They were not behaving outside the norm for their own homes. I referred earlier to some disagreement between the experts, and that was a disagreement between Jeffrey Ronsell, the author of a book about the case, who had the fabulous red glasses in the fireplace, and Dr. David Holmes, the criminal psychologist. There was a moment in Fred West's young life where he suffered a terrible motorcycle accident. And this is, I believe, this happened prior to the incest trial. 
and they were going to try to say that as a result of the accident and a metal plate being put in his head, possibly, nobody says definitively whether or not a metal plate was actually put in his head, that this took the brakes off of his already completely deranged behavior. Um, Dr. Um, excuse me, Dr. Holmes, the criminal psychologist, believes this is true. Jeffrey Wansell thinks it's a load of bunk. That, that he said there, the guy was no, was completely, there was not even evidence that he was that he had a metal plate in his head, or that he had ever had breaks on his behavior at all. I yeah. mean, he was just, yeah. it, you know, it, oh god, this was an awful. He story. said there was no doubt to him that he would have been a serial killer no matter what happened to him. Yeah, whether he had the metal plate or the head injury or not, that he was had been raised in such an absence of any sort of sense of consequence or um, social. Uh, limitations on his behavior that he would have he would ne- he would have gone on and done this no matter what. So where did this leave you on the nature nurture argument? I mean, this is maybe the most compelling and disturbing argument for nurture uh, that I've ever seen. But I will say well, this: Did the other siblings yes. grow up to be serial killers? You know, I mean, in Fred West's house. Yeah, I, I as I always say. The, the, the most significant influence in your life isn't what happens to you. It It's how you react to it. You are the most influential person in your own life. Two people can be born into mean circumstances in a ghetto and with limited educational opportunity and, you know, every other negative in their environment. And one of them can grow up to be a huge success in the light of the world around them and, um, a contributor to society and smart as a whip and whatever. And the other one can turn out to be, you know, a gangster and a killer and a lunatic and a, you know, and a, and a, a menace to society. I, I, right. I think that there is an enormous amount of personal choice in, in anybody's life. And I think we are shaped more by our own choices than we are by what happens to us. But I think we also live in, as I call it, the victim driven life. You know, we live in, a culture that is driven by um, a sense of victimhood. And that also becomes a sort of sense of justification. The devil made me do it. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. I definitely agree that a lot of the, I don't know if armchair analysis is the right word for much of what fills many of these true crime specials that we talk about, but let's just say sweeping, presumptuous analysis that we're sometimes subjected to from experts of dubious qualifications. 
that that we arrive at that victim driven point of view on a lot of these serial killers like they were made this way by a single incident by a single bad person yeah. in their life and i really thought this show being called what it was murderers and their mothers they would be they would come down much harder on that and i would have a lot more criticism for them but they but, really oh my felt God. were balanced i felt they were really balanced in their portrayal i'm telling you everything I, that I, this happened. is one of those cases where i don't know how these children could have grown up to be anything else yeah, I just, it's, um, you know, I think there is something interesting about the fact that there was traumatic brain injury in both Fred and Rosemary at various points yes. in their life. But at the same time, somebody in the special says, and I think it might be Elizabeth Yardley, the criminologist who's in the studio they keep going back to, that Rosemary learned from the fact that her mother completely vanished, just sort of descended into this bleak depression, and her father turned to her for sex, that if she was going to be cared for by a man, she had to completely surrender her body to him. Her body was no longer her own. But at the same time, I'm not sure that explains participation in torture murders. It's one thing to allow your husband to murder. It's another thing to become his accomplice, his enthusiastic accomplice. Absolutely. Like the other thing that they... The other thing that they said Rosemary learned from the experience was that sex was a great way to get people to do what you wanted them to. Like mm-hmm. she learned to use sex in a way that was maybe, you know, uh, at least um, it commercial. Right. <laughs> she wasn't charging necessarily, although they did say that he hoard her out, pimped her out to the neighbors and friends and whoever. And she saw it as her job to, you know, comply with what her husband wanted. But she also used it to her own advantage to get people to do the things that she wanted them to do for her. Uh, yeah, I, I just it was. It's it's horrifying to believe that the com- that boundaries like that can completely collapse in a family, a family on that extent. I mean, this isn't the, what we were hearing described was not like the family's turning the other cheek and they know something's happening in the dark room and they don't talk about it. This was, everyone was drawn into this awful soup of abuse and molestation. And it happened in two generations. It happened in Fred. Well, it happened in three because it happened in Rosemary's house, Fred's house and the house that they built together. And it's just, it's the most, disturbing argument for molestation and abuse being generational that I've ever heard. But at the same time, all people who were sexually abused as children do not grow up to be abusers. That's not the truth. There was something about these two. I mean, maybe this is just wishful thinking. I want to believe it was unique to them, to their DNA that, that turned this into such a tinderbox. But at the same time, it's like my, it's, it was just awful. It was completely awful. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And because it was, I thought, delivered in a way but through the special that wasn't as sensationalist as as some of the other specials we've watched have been with the sort of shadowy reenactments and all those things can in a weird way, particularly if you think they're badly done and you can make fun of them, they can allow the bitter pill to go down easier. Whereas this was just kind of the academic recitation of these hideous facts along yeah, with archival really- photographs. That's what I mean by it being a real departure from what we usually um, have on True Crime TV Club. This was very much an uh, an informed and historical sort of uh, explanation of the reading of recitation of the facts and some sort of intellectual assessment of the nature of those facts, but not uh, like 
they, other than the first girlfriend, I don't know that they explored any of the victims. Like they, there was more no. than a dozen no. uh, victims they found buried that they know of um, uh, that they found buried in the backyard. They talked about the two children and the first girlfriend. And then that was, and maybe his father's mom, uh, first wife, but, but that was it. No. And, and even then it was the most cursory kind of, um, coverage of who they were. It was more a focus on how people like this had come into being and been unleashed and, and gone unchecked for so long. The thing that startles me is that people this outside of social norms could continue to function in a amidst society um, for so long, for 20 years or more, like without any real, um, like this was just sort of an accidental thing. A policeman on a bicycle asks a kid a question and it pricks up his ears and well, suddenly wait, let me ask you about that. Did you get the impression at all that the kids were kind of hailing the bike cop for this purpose, that they were actually sort of crying for help or did, or did they were a little vague the thing, in their depiction? The thing that I got from it was that they were saying that the kids, and I would be interested to know from this same group of people, how the kids turned out that were left. Right. Given yeah. their, given their upbringing. Um, I, I haven't, you know, so far as I know, they didn't go on to become brutal serial killers. So I'm thinking that that gets back to the nature versus nurture argument. Um, but the, um, but the kids, the thing that I got mostly from the, the, the encounter with the policeman was that the kids did not see this as being abnormal behavior. They were asking him in a, in a, you know, it was a genuine question that they were asking him and that he had just, you know, paused and spoken to them because they were out playing in the yard as he came by on his bicycle. He wasn't suspicious and they weren't actually trying to get him to intervene, but they were also asking because, you know, like you, you complain about it and you get killed and buried under the patio. Well, that doesn't seem right. Is that fair? Let's ask somebody else if that, you know, is the natural course of events. Like, you know, at some point, slavery probably seemed like a normal thing because everybody was doing it, but it was, you know, a horrible atrocity and yeah, <laughs> it really isn't okay. But if everybody's doing it, well, maybe you think, okay, maybe slavery is a thing. I, I just think that if that's the world that you live in, a lot of things that are horrific can seem normal. And I think that was the case with these kids. I read an interview once with, a, a, I don't know if she's still on television here in Los Angeles, but she, Jillian Barbary um, gave oh, yeah. a very candid interview and she was sexually abused. And she said, as a child, when it's happening to you, you realize it's abuse when you realize it's not happening to all the other kids. Right. Like you go to school and you reference it in some way that's like, you, you think it's as normal as your father bringing you to school. And you get the reaction that you get. And that's when, and you either descend into paralysis and silence over it and shame, or somebody gets the hint, you know, and reaches out to you and does something about it. And I've had conversations with teachers who say the same way that typically what happens is that children who are being abused bring highly sexualized behaviors into the school environment, which, which can trigger red flags. I, I, I'm speculating now, I think, in our more sexualized age that we live in where young people can get pornography more easily than they used to be able to. I'm not sure that's as reliable a test as it used to be. You could just be dealing with a young man who managed to hack the parental codes on his computer and has seen things. 
But um, that's the part of the story where it's like things worked. You know, like I was so worried we were going to get to years of cops ignoring warnings. And maybe that's part of it and they left it out. But that there seemed to be almost no lag time between that bicycle cop having this really disturbing conversation with these kids who maybe didn't realize the gravity of what they were saying. And then a few, a little while later, they were in the yard digging up the bodies and looking for, yes, for Heather. It seemed to go pretty much straight to, to from zero to 60 in 10 seconds. I, there was not a sense. I did not get the sense, at least from this telling that this was after years of, that's part of my amazement that they were able to like, as they're depicting it, you know, continue to conduct their affairs in this way for as long as they did without attracting any more attention than they attracted. Yes, that's really. I just, and I mean, that may be a side of the story that that just didn't fit into the hour. We're always dealing with that here. I mean, what we're not really giving you the definitive account of the case. We're giving you an account of the hour of television that we watched. Right. We we're about talking about it. This is a TV review, not a, yeah. we're not uh, true crime reporters. We're not doing that. We are talking about television shows that we watch that covered true crime. So we can only talk about what actually was depicted in the show. And so, yeah, I think some of those things were not as clear. I was not as big a fan of this one as you were for that reason. I felt like it was a little um, pedantic and not, um, it didn't delve into the nature of it at all, as much as, as some of the other shows, like it did not talk about the victims. It did not talk about the investigation. It did not talk about any of those things. It really, but that was, you know, that it was as promised. It was mothers and their murderers. So they were talking about the fact that Rose's mom's complete absence and mental decline and Fred's mom's, you know, molestation and abuse were, enormous factors in creating who these people were, who they turned out to be was still ultimately up to them, but both their moms had a huge impact on their lives. Yeah. I I would say this, you know, I, I, I I get what you're saying. And I think that part of it was that they were determined to address that question. And so they gave way, way more minutes of the hour to the early childhood of the killers than usually it's like, there was a trade off in time. I think that I'm very glad that we, I think, have strengthened our traditions in the contemporary world to really honor and recognize the victims. And if you don't in these specials, people sort of swiftly call you out on it. But I think it runs the risk, too. And I feel this a lot with true crime podcasts where the close in on the grieving parents after a certain point becomes kind of pornographic and exploitive. If I have to listen to one more sort of horrible series of sobs on a on a true crime podcast i start to think okay give the woman a break you know back off a little bit honoring the names of the victims and honoring the biographies of who they were is for me enough but you are correct there is none of that in this special at all but i guess i was just they didn't even really they didn't even really to any real extent explore their MO, which I guess is probably a blessing because it appears to have been so incredibly horrific. Um, but like, I didn't like, I didn't get a sense of how they operated, how, what, you know, how they brought in a victim, how they captured them or any, because there was no exploration of the investigation. There was there just wasn't. discovery and confession. 
No, there wasn't. I mean, and there were there there were two things. I mean, like the density of it when I was sitting down to do the show notes, as I complain to you, was like not my favorite thing because it was like, wow, this is an enormous um uh this is an enormous case being shoehorned into an hour, you know, more yes. so than uh, usually. I see very much what you're saying about it being pedantic. And I think some of the, some of what I liked about the details that it did include, I didn't like when I sat down to do the show notes about it because there was so <laughs> much that we had to cover. But God knows. There were, there were two things that I felt on that front. I felt they were shoehorning a, a very long story into an hour of television, maybe more than, than we're used to. We complain about the condensations and the shortcuts that happen all the time, but this was a very big multi-victim serial killing case, that the, and, their, and their backgrounds were so horrific. There was just a lot to include. But I also Enough. felt yeah. they were talking about a very famous case in Britain to a primarily British audience. And so they may have been omitting some details that they thought their core audience took for granted that we as Americans who maybe didn't know oh, the case as well could have used. I considered that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Right. Like there's some things, if you tell me about Ted Bundy again, I'm going to scream because I've seen so much Ted Bundy stuff at this point. I want you to have some insight or something Something new. new. Zodiac yeah. or Ted Bundy, you've really right. got to come up with something new or leave me alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But again, I was so relieved that they didn't just beat me over the head with the mother did it. It's the mother's fault. It's the mother's fault. I really, I they didn't really think, didn't say that. Yeah. I mean, I, and we don't know what created those parents. They were a little open ended with that. My sense from it was that they were. This is how they were raised. Right. It didn't seem like they were. You know, like they didn't see it as unusual behavior either, because this is how they were raised. I, I, you know, we have come to expect a level of socialization in our own lives that may simply not have been around for very long. I've been struck by um, the the notion of family that we have today as compared with the notion of family like a generation ago, like at my father's generation, you know, a family. Like the, the sense of family there seems markedly different than what we expect from family now, mm -hmm. you know, or even in my time, but certainly in my father's time. I mean, he knew who his parents were, but they weren't close. His father wasn't tossing a ball with him in the backyard or participating in a qualitative way in their lives or, or either his mother, either that I could tell one of his brothers went missing. Mm -hmm. They don't know what happened to him ever. And like, I guess there's been some looking into it, but they didn't fall apart. Can you imagine if a member of your family just went missing now? Yeah, I think this is, I always appreciate hearing this because I've read so many um, laudatory writings of the, of the extended family bemoaning the collapse of it into the nuclear family, right? And it's this sort of vision in which, well, then the family was extended. Everybody divided up responsibilities and grandmothers were in the home taking care of the young babies and, there wasn't so much pressure on two parents, but but the the other side of it is that there seems to with the nuclear family there seems to be this set of of emergent values because two people or in some cases one person needs to do so much of the child rearing. It's almost like right. the moral codes are stricter and tighter, and, and I, the expectations are heightened. I, I I don't know if I'm articulating that well enough, but. But it is the the rosy good old days where all the the family all stuck together. I mean, stories like this blow a hole in that, you know. And I know yeah, this is I the mean, exception, hopefully. Or they but. stuck together into in whatever they stuck their 
uh, together in, but it, it it isn't the same kind of um, family that we look at as a sort of model for family today, even for people who, you know, obviously this is exceptional whenever it occurs, but um, but I think that's that seems to me to be maybe a part of it is that we just didn't know and we didn't look into like attitudes about um, spousal abuse, mm-hmm. you know, how much they have evolved in my lifetime from, mm-hmm. well, you know, like those kinds of things go on in the house. You don't want to intrude in that as opposed to now when it's like not, you know, you see something, say something. Yeah. Um, with with even in that sort of level. So I, I think some of this has to do with our own evolution, um, though. I, obviously, this would have been horrific whenever it happened. Yeah. Just unbelievable. I I thought the uh, passport to murder uh, episode we talked about a few episodes ago was going to be the most disturbing thing we'd ever done. But it turns out this is the most disturbing thing we've ever done. So I'm never going to say that again because we're going to top it. But next week we are not doing Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. We'll be back with something fresh and different. Next week is going to be the first episode of Ask Eric. That's right. So if you have advice, questions for Eric Shaw Quinn and you want his penetrating insight given to your life the way he gives it to mine and to the subjects of our true crime specials send an email to eric at the dinner party and if you would like to remain anonymous simply say that in your email and we won't use your name on the air but you will and get- if we don't get any emails then next week we'll do something a completely different something completely <laughs> different but just about us so that's it for this episode of TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. Happy Mother's Day. This is TDPS.